So we're continuing our, Lent, our Lenten series called Words from the Cross, and today we're on uh, the third statement Jesus made uh, from the cross. We're investing the six weeks of Lent in the, the final six hours of Jesus' life uh, on this earth. And during those last six hours of his earthly life, he made seven statements, which if we consider them deeply, we find to be quite profound. And as I've been saying every week, uh, we need to pay attention to these for multiple reasons, not the least of which is that speaking while being crucified was an excruciating act. You had to work really hard and endure a lot of pain to take a breath so as to be able to utter words. Jesus did that seven times. We ought to pay attention to that. So that's what we're doing in this series. And again, today we're at the third word from the cross, which comes from John's gospel uh, in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. I'll just read this passage for us today. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now this, this, uh, third word from the cross feels a little different. Uh, if, if you were around as we thought about the first two, you might agree. Remember the first two, the first, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You know, the, the statement Jesus prayed either as he was being nailed to the cross or just after he had been nailed to the cross and, and set up to be crucified. And the second, truly I tell you today you'll be with me in paradise, spoken to uh, the, the criminal on the one side of him that asked him to remember, asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Um, and, and as we saw both of those statements, even though made nearly 2,000 years ago, uh, have enduring meaning for us now living in, in this day. But, but this third word of Jesus um, seem, seems more personal, doesn't it? He, looked to his mother and said, woman, here's your son, presumably nodding at the Apostle John, and then looked at the Apostle John and said, and here's your mother, like nodding. It's a little kind of matchmaking moment, right? Um, It feels like Jesus is making arrangements for his mother to be cared for after his death. And and certainly that's true. And that, that reveals that Jesus is a noble person, a nice and thoughtful guy. But is there more to it than that? There is, and the sermon today will have three points. Imagine that. An observation, a commandment, and a new community. An observation, a commandment, and a new community. Uh, So first, the the observation has to do with uh, the role of women in Jesus' ministry. We need to observe this. We would be remiss to not notice this, not talk about it a bit. 
Um, in, in the simple fact that there were either three or four women at the foot of the cross while there was only one of Jesus' 12 apostles, it says something. I'll get back to the three or four in a moment. Don't let that sidetrack you. Uh, the, the scene in John's gospel, the way it unfolds, pivots from the four soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes, which was a common thing because the undergarment was quite valuable. So the Roman soldiers got to, you know, gamble on who would get the valuable stuff. John's gospel pivots from the, the four soldiers casting lots to these women caring for Jesus in his hour of greatest need. One commentator put it this way. We last saw four soldiers throwing dice. We now see four women keeping faith. The world and the church in short snapshots. Now back in Jesus' day, as I'm, I'm, I'm sure we know, uh, the culture was very patriarchal, meaning male-based, revolved around the men. In a, in a legal proceeding, it took the testimony of two women to equal the testimony of one man. Uh, back in that day, women were considered to be the property of their husbands. Like, really, it was like a legal thing. Um, if, if you're familiar with uh, the Bible a bit, think of the Old Testament uh, book of Ruth. It's the story of Naomi, whose husband dies, and then 10 years later, both of her sons die. Ruth was married to one of those sons. And without rehashing the whole story, it's just crystal clear that in that culture, a widow left without a husband or any male offspring was in a bad place. And that, that, that woman would be a social outcast. No social leverage, no way really to help herself. Even if she wanted, there's nothing. There was nothing there. She was, she was marginalized, no social standing. Was really dependent on either the, the charity of extended family or the larger community for the very basics of eating and living. It, it was that bad. So that was the culture. So into this culture steps Jesus. And when, when compared to the culture of that time, we have to acknowledge that the role of women played in the unfolding story of Jesus is striking. Consider this. It was the women who financially supported the work of Jesus and the disciples. It was a woman who became the first missionary to the Samaritans. It was a woman who anointed Jesus with oil in preparation for, this, for his death. It was three or four women who had the courage to stand by Jesus' cross for six hours as he died. It was women who first came to the tomb and found it empty on Easter morning. It was a woman who first saw Christ raised from the dead in, and in turn a woman who became the first to proclaim the resurrection to others. Jesus regularly showed compassion, mercy, and love toward women in the Gospels which stood out as countercultural in his day. It, it is clear that the redemptive direction in which the Bible points, both Old and New Testaments, is toward relationships between men and women where there is, quote, interdependence, mutuality, and servant-like attitudes. We see that reality in the women at the foot of the cross. That, that's the observation. So a, a quick thing about the three or four women uh, bit Look at the first verse we read again today. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That's one way to read it. Another way to read it is this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Make sense? So Mary, the wife of Clopas, might be describing who Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, was. It, it's not clear um, 
there is, there is a, uh, so this is just point of interest at this point, right? Um, there's a historical reference that says that Clopas was the brother of Joseph. Interesting, right? That would make Mary uh, the wife of Clopas, the sister-in-law of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If that were the case, they likely all lived in the same household because you typically lived as extended families in what was known as an oikia, kind of a family compound kind of thing. So it could very well be that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was here with her sister-in-law, you know, one of the few to stand with her in, in this time. Uh, interestingly, the son of Clopas and Mary, uh, named Simeon, went on to become a leader in the church of Jerusalem after Peter and James died. So maybe Jesus' cousin. So there's all the family math <laughs> for, for what it's worth. But the larger point is the role of women in, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, and, and that Jesus advanced God's desire for more honor, respect, mutuality for women in a world largely ruled by men. That's the observation. Now the commandment. Probably the most common interpretation of this third word from the cross is that it was a demonstration of Jesus obeying the fifth commandment. You know, honor your father and mother uh, so that uh, you, your, uh, your life may be long in the, in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, and, th- and that is without a doubt true, right? It, it says a lot that Jesus in his final moments thought about his mother during uh, what must have been, he must have been enduring uh, mind-numbing pain, and yet he's, he's thinking about others, right? That speaks volumes. From the pulpit of the cross, Jesus preached a sermon on the fifth commandment. Indeed, he did. And we would do well to listen to that sermon. It's an example for us. Um, it, it, it does seem at this point that Mary, Jesus' mother, was likely a widow. I don't know if you've thought much about this. The last we hear of Joseph in the Gospels is when Jesus was 12. So we, we kind of think, though it's not completely clear again, that uh, Joseph died when Jesus was a young man. So Mary functioned as a widow, and Jesus knew what the culture was like for widows. So he's making arrangements for his mother. And again, you can, you can imagine your way in. Like he looks at and Mary and says, here's your son. And then he looks at John and says, here's your mother. And there's a, a lot was communicated non-verbally. Right? You can imagine the nod and the look and all of the understanding that was conveyed in, in that. So in doing this, Jesus expressed deep care for her mother. He honored her by thinking of her in his time of greatest pain and, and need. But this third word from the cross is not only about the fifth commandment. There's more. Now, Jesus had siblings. He had brothers. So this handoff of his mother to the apostle John must have meant that Jesus did not yet trust his brothers to take care of their mother, at least to take care of her in the kind of household he had in mind. 
You know, instead, he looked to his closest earthly friend, the Apostle John, called the beloved disciple. There was a special relationship between Jesus and John. And in this third word from the cross, Jesus was not only communicating deep concern for his mother, he was communicating the utmost trust in John. Now imagine you're John for a moment and think your way into hearing the words, but more than that, experiencing the nonverbals. Jesus on the cross looking at you and saying, Here's your mother. You feel it, right? That the trust, the I know you will do the right thing. I'm trusting you with the person I love most. And that's really kind of what Jesus was saying. John, you're the one to whom I entrust the people I care about most. Because Jesus knew John would keep everything Jesus had said at the center of his household. It would be a real world family. It was also a spiritual family. It would be a household of faith with all the care and concern for others, all others, that comes from trusting Jesus and grasping his work in this world. It would be a family formed at the foot of the cross by Jesus, and it would have far-reaching implications for what it means to follow Jesus. You see, the family Jesus formed at the foot of the cross with this third word from the cross was an entirely new kind of family based not only on blood relationships, but based on deep trust in God, based on faith in Jesus. It was a template for the way we are to follow Jesus in this world because that new kind of family was, in fact, a new kind of community in Christ. Fleming Rutledge sets us straight on this third word from the cross. This saying is not about being nice to your mother. It's about the new community that comes into being through the power of Jesus. That new community is the church of Jesus Christ. In that community, the distinctions so polarizing in the cultures in which we live fall to the wayside. The scripture makes that very clear. Look at this from Galatians. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. See, these, are, these were the major distinctions in, in that day of the, the us and them thing. The major definitions of the in-group and the out-group. I mean, in that culture, you were either a Jew or a Gentile. And which one you were mattered a lot. You were either slave or free. And which one you were mattered a lot. You were either male or female. And which one you were mattered a lot. But clearly, something happened that's bigger than all those social boundary markers, those typical ways people divide themselves. And that something happened to be a someone hanging on the cross, praying for our forgiveness, assuring us that the only thing we need to do to receive that forgiveness is to acknowledge our need 
and ask. It's that simple. And the new community into which God welcomes us is beyond our wildest imagining. It really is. It, it's, it's a radically inclusive community because it looks to one question and one question alone. Are you in Christ? Have you been healed of the greatest human ailment of separation from God? It's the Revelation 7, 9 vision of God's kingdom beginning to be realized in the here and now. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. The palm branches, the way of welcoming, celebrating a victorious king, right? People from every culture of the world come together under the single banner of Christ for the purpose of worshiping Jesus who gave himself for us all. What a stunningly beautiful picture. Right? What a stunningly beautiful community. Now, God only knows the innumerable ways we have screwed this up as a church. Right? And, and the ways we continue to screw it up. And do you know what I take that to prove? That the Bible is perfectly accurate in its description of human beings. That we are utterly broken. That none of us are fully fixed. That we're all works in process. And that we are going to fail. And the only way to be together is to be a community of grace formed at the foot of the cross of Jesus. So to the many accusations of the world saying, hey church, you really screwed this up. Not to all of them, but to many of them, our only response can be, yeah, we agree. Would you please forgive us? But, those who rail against organized religion and institutional church, I think sometimes fail to grasp the kind of community that Jesus is calling into being. See, when the Christian church is working the way it's supposed to, people are brought together who have absolutely nothing in common, who may have diametrically different views on things, who may even actively dislike each other. Well, how about that? I I feel uh, really blessed to have had uh, some of the experiences I've had in life which have been facilitated really by others. Uh, One of those was spending a summer in Kuwait between my middle and senior year in seminary. I learned a lot um, from that experience, uh, not the least of which Summer is not the time to go to Kuwait. (laughs) Most of the Kuwaitis leave the country and go to Cyprus because they're like, this place is way too hot. We got to get out of here. Interestingly, the National Evangelical Church of Kuwait to this day stands on the old RCA hospital uh, grounds, the, uh, the, the parcel of land given to us by the king 
for the purpose of putting up a mission hospital. The reason uh, that church still exists today in that country, and the only reason is because we as the RCA showed up before the discovery of oil. Very important, because they're super suspicious about the money thing. So they, they knew that we came because we cared, not because we wanted a piece of the pie. Powerful story. So every day I drive to work, and you drive up this little road between the skeletons of two completely dilapidated buildings, which were the hospitals that we ran for decades for, for the Kuwaiti people. You weave your way back through the compound, and there are the buildings of the church and such. But the summer I was there, 1998, it was right in between the two Gulf Wars. And it happened also to be the summer that the country of India decided to flex its military might um, and, and uh, teach Pakistan a lesson with regard to the hotly debated Kashmir region in, in the north. So India lobbed an intercontinental ballistic missile across Pakistan into the Arabian Sea. Now, you can imagine how that went over with Pakistan. Not well. In our church, made, made up largely of international folks come together, there were a whole lot of Indians and a whole lot of Pakistanis. I led the youth group. The two largest populations of my 75-member youth group were Indians and Pakistanis. On our church board there, Indians and Pakistanis. Wow, was it tense. I mean, you could cut, cut the emotions with a knife. It was, it was super tense. See, as citizens of their home countries, these Indians and Pakistanis of the church had arrived at an irreconcilable difference. You're an Indian, I hate you. You're a Pakistani, I hate you. We don't get along. Our countries are almost at war. It was, te it was tense. But that was the citizens of their home countries. As citizens of heaven, there's a different perspective. Uh, slowly, they began, began to come around to this other point of view. They realized that before they were Indians and Pakistanis, they were, of course, Christians. The other thing that helped was there was only one church. <laughs> if you were Protestant and you wanted to worship in English, you could not go anywhere else. There was one option. What a blessing. R really, what a blessing. Because our petty behavior was not allowed in that environment. I couldn't just get annoyed and depart and not tell anybody. So completely unhealthy. I couldn't go church shopping, right? I had to sit with my brothers and sisters in Christ and figure it out and pray through it together. And let me tell you, that's good for us. That is good for, it is spiritually good for us. Uh, at that church, I'll, I'll never forget this. There was, uh, 
there were all sorts of services. It's a unique compound. But whenever we celebrated communion, everyone would come forward in a group of about maybe 40 at a time and would kneel in an ark and communion would be served to them kneeling. Never forget the picture. End of the summer, you know, Indians and Pakistanis kneeling together. Along with a friend of mine, a Filipino maid, who happened that evening to be kneeling next to an expat, uh, high-powered British attorney in a three-piece suit, an oil industry guy, super humble, super gracious. The, the beautiful community, right? All kneeling at the foot of the cross to receive the Lord's Supper in the name of Jesus. And you hear people say they can be Christians without coming to church. <laughs> Don't fool yourself. If you're not part, if you're not an active part of a local church, you're missing out on the kind of community Jesus is building. This is not a guilt trip. There are seasons of life, there are circumstances of life that have us out of the corporate body for a while. God knows those things. God is with us in those things. But some say they find community in their social group or with their coworkers or at the club. Some say they find community in political, political action causes. Mil- military community is referred to as brothers in arms. Labor community, a fraternal order, right? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. All of those are way too easy. And each of them pales in community in comparison to the community Jesus formed at the foot of the cross. And and this brings me maybe to just a gentle reminder, mostly to those of you who are worshiping with us online. It's good to be in church in person. It's really good. Uh, If you still find yourself in a place of being very conservative with regard to COVID, that's okay. But I'd encourage you to ask yourself a question. What threshold needs to be met before I return to an in-person experience. I encourage you to pray through that if you haven't answered that question. It's important to be together in person. Presence matters. If it didn't, Jesus would not have come in person. It's really that simple. Presence matters. We need one another to follow Jesus well. We need other people with whom we disagree and maybe even dislike as part of the body to follow Jesus well. So, be an active part of a local church. Not because you feel guilty because your pastor is telling you you should, but because you're drawn by this vision of the beautiful community that God is building in Christ. It's something perfectly unique in the world. There's nothing like it anywhere. Now, one one last but very important point. This new community was founded at the foot of the cross and there is no way into it but through the cross. We do not build it by our own effort. We don't organize it by our own strength. We don't manage it 
by our own skill. No level of humanitarian funding will bring it about, no level of community organizing will cause it to occur, and no level of humanist solidarity will generate this kind of community. We must travel through the cross of Jesus and all that he did there on our behalf to enter this kind of community. Because this is, this is a new community under the cross that comes into being by the power of Jesus and the power of Jesus alone. We can't build this on our own. We don't have the endurance to hold it together on our own. This is done by the Spirit of God amidst the people of God as we come together at the foot of the cross. See, in saying to John, here's your mother, it was like he was saying to John, John, you are the one to whom I entrust the people I care about most. I I believe Jesus continues to speak those words today, not to the apostle John, but to the church. You are the ones to whom I entrust the people I care about most. Meaning, the last, the least, the lost of this hard and broken world, all who confess the name of Jesus, a a, a larger world in such obvious need, Jesus trusts his church with the people he cares about. This is one of the reasons we're in the midst of our current Sunday seminar This is week two of four weeks. The title of that seminar is Building a Welcoming Presence, Creating a Church Culture Where the Marginalized Are Welcome and All Are Cherished. Why? Because this is the kind of community Jesus formed at the foot of the cross with his third word from the cross. Becoming that kind of person the kind of person who welcomes and cherishes others is a discipleship issue and a way we can more intentionally follow Jesus in this world, something we can work at, do, follow God in. So, come to the seminar. It's a great conversation led by some great leaders from the RCA. Let's learn and grow together. Let's follow Jesus into the beautiful community he called together at the foot of the cross and continues to build right now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Help us, Lord. Uh, Help us uh, to become the, the kind of people You are inviting us to be. You are helping us to be by your spirit. We know we can't do it in our own strength. And we know we want that new community that you're calling together. So would you help us in our weakness? And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.